This New America NYC event took place on December 11, 2017, and is entitled Banding the Ark, a social cinema screening. This event features Nina Fiaco, Natalia Kenan, Alicia Mayfield, Nancy Anatole, Donna Patterson, and Lori Adaman. Thank you, Beth, and um, many thanks to New America for facilitating this screening. Um, glad to see you all. Thank you for being here. As she said, I'm Nina Fialco, and I'm one of the executive producers of the film Bending the Ark. And um, I'm part of Impact Partners, where we support films that are committed to issues of social justice, um, from healthcare to environmental issues, um, children's rights, women's rights, variety of things. Um, Bending the Ark, as Beth um, said, is a story of three young people with the audacity to believe that healthcare is a basic human right. And 30 years ago, as she said, they started Partisan Health and developed a delivery system that now saves, serves thousands of people around the world. Um, and you will hear from some of those real P PIH heroes um, after the film. Um, I would also like to mention and thank Corey Stern, the incredibly dedicated producer and filmmaker, could not be here tonight. Um, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that for the better part of 10 years, she dedicated herself to bringing this story to, forward to everybody. And um, she was unwavering in that effort. And um, she's very close with Paul Farmer, Jim Kim, and Ophelia Dahl. And she, along with the directors Pedro Koss and Keith Davidson, have crafted a really beautiful film that I hope you will all find inspiring. So please enjoy the show. So this film raises a number of issues, and we'll try to tackle as many as possible tonight. We'll have a discussion and take some questions from the audience. Partners in Health has made many interventions into women's maternal health and family planning in its partners, partner countries like Haiti, Rwanda, and Malawi, and with partner, partner organizations such as the Fistula Foundation. All of your organizations tackle maternal health or women's access in different ways. Let's begin here. In what ways do you think your respective organizations, Partners in Health, uh, UNFPA, and also uh, Women Deliver, contribute to improving maternal access and care? Maybe I can start and take that question and you all can pick up where I left off. I mean, thank you so much for um, this incredible moment and night and for making this film available to me. Um, I think I'm having some allergies, some allergic reaction, I'm sure is what was happening during that film. Um, and thank you to Tumblr for hosting us and for moderating us. So it's just great to be here with, uh, you know, the, the heroes of this movement. And um, to answer your question, I mean, I think what is so incredible about this film is that it does a really good job of showing how um, social justice issues come up and show up in the work of global health. Right, that is such the message of um, what Dr. Farmer and what Partners in Health is doing, and it shows how um, you know health outcomes are really just a way that all of these issues that show up in society um, come down onto the bodies of Black and Brown people um, living in resource poor settings. And so I thought it just did such a good job of illuminating that. And just to go right to your question, um, that's also true of patriarchy and sexism and all of the ways that um, women and femininity and um, you know, issues that um, keep uh, women down and of gender are um, replicated and they, and they um, manifest themselves into our health outcomes. And so that's why, uh, I mean, to, to speak to what uh, my organization Women Deliver does, um, we are a global advocacy organization and you saw a lot about service delivery and the, the best ways to do service delivery and that's so, so incredible and important. Um, and I think we also see a need to um, be at that table where these high level decisions are being made and say, hey, what about the health rights and well-being of girls and women? What are the unique needs that women and girls have? And, and so some of that falls along the lines of maternal health. 
not all we say we always say women deliver and not just babies so not all um, women do become mothers or, or are mothers yet and so there's also other needs that um, fall in line around gender and um, so we really see advocacy and building political will as really important um, women deliver in particular is known for holding the largest conference on um, global uh, health rights and well-being of girls and women in the world it happens every three years you're all invited um, to the next one in, in June of 2019 in Vancouver um, and so that's just one of the ways that um, we see this issue playing out. Um, uh, good evening, everyone. So I, I just want to talk a little about a little bit about my uh, my actually journey to PIH. So uh, I think it would be I would end up just being more specific by your questions. So um, this movie reminds me just July 2005. That's actually when I was working for um, uh, another organization. And um, and uh, my team asked me to take some applications because there's an organization hiring. Then I said, I would take them. And when I arrived at this office, I read about this organization. So the way people advertise jobs, I was in Rwanda, I could barely speak uh, English. So <laughs> and then I read this organization and some key themes emerging, uh, social justice um, and, and human rights, um, preferential option for the poor. And I, I didn't have intention to apply for a job. I said, what is the deadline? They said, we have three hours. And I had no computer that time. And I just had to sit down. And I, someone gave me a paper. And I wrote with my pen here. I said, dear sir, I need this job. And, <laughs> and, um, and surprisingly, the next day, I was the only one who got called to join this organization. I, I think that was in July, and uh, you know, since then, um, I'm in it. So I just want to be quick to your question. So when I when I joined the organization, I really wanted to see if it's real. And my supervisor, who you know, in my former job, said, "Manzi, are you really sure that organization is real? What's written there is that real?" And I said, yes, I am convinced that I have that feeling. And I, I went there and he promised me something that people do not do not normally. He said, I will keep your job. Go, if you, if you are disappointed, come back. And he called me after one month and I said, I said he said, are you really convinced that that's the organization you want to work for? And I said, yes, it's right. Back to maternal mortality, and the very first month that I joined the organization, all I saw was um, those people. And it was a movie, but for me, it was live. Seeing the very first maternal death, a woman who died just the very first day I arrived in this clinic. And I was just a nurse trying to understand how, what am I going to do? And HIV patients coming, but the only reason I joined the organization was that for my previous years, I was pretty much depressed, testing people and say, you are HIV positive, but I can't do anything, so go home. Tell them, go eat well. And I know them, they're coming from my own village, I know they don't have anything to eat, but I say, go eat well and behave, and there's nothing else I can do. And this organization was saying, we will tackle all of these issues. So um, joining the, the local uh, health system is really key. If we really want to tackle maternal mortality, the work we have done is really going, training local clinicians and public health and other professionals to really uh, understand these key determinants of health and address 
health systems issues. So tackling those areas from um, identifying these root causes of these health systems failure to providing accompaniment, not only just someone to accompany, to give a drug, but also to be a friend to understand what are the needs in terms of knowledge, in terms of systems, in terms of all we need to be um, to provide care. So there's so major delays, uh, delays to seek care, to tackle that. So why women are not really coming to the clinic? And there's a delay in getting care they need, and also the delay in actually uh, having the appropriate, so uh, seeking care, uh, getting care, and also um, providing care. So it's really all that we have been doing, and it's, it has been proven really effective in reducing, improving quality of care and reducing maternal mortality. Thanks, Manzi. Uh, I don't have much to add about uh, what Partners in Health does for women's health, because I think Manzi spoke quite eloquently. I think what I'll just mention is that much of this movie profiles some of the fights that we've had over the decades and in the past history, and those fights continue today. And when it comes to something like maternal health, right at the end, they mentioned Ebola and work in West Africa. And Sierra Leone and Liberia, which are countries we started working in in the setting of Ebola, um, have some of the worst maternal mortality in the world. Sierra Leone has the worst maternal mortality in the world. So one in 17 women in Sierra Leone will die in childbirth in their life. So, you know, in this room, someone would die or your mother or your sister, someone you know, a good friend, would die during childbirth. In addition, in Sierra Leone, 50% of women um, undergo domestic abuse and sexual violence during the course of their lifetime, which obviously we've seen a lot in the news lately here in our country. Um, this is something that affects everyone everywhere, but I think the problems are so extreme and so rampant in these countries that there's really so many more fights uh, on the horizon. Hi, Natalia. Um, so this is a question about how um, your respective organizations um, impact maternal care and, and access. Well, thank you for welcoming me. I apologize for coming late. And I'll say a few words about why uh, in a few minutes. And I also just want to thank you for being here, uh, representing the United Nations Population Fund, uh, which works on reproductive health and rights around the world in 155 countries, is something that's new to me. So you're actually seeing me in my second month as leader of the organization. Uh, my predecessor was the renowned African statesman, Dr. Babatunde Oshotimeyen, who actually phrased it, no woman should die while giving life. And uh, the passion and the fervor that I have for the mission of UNFPA actually started uh, early in my career as a pediatrician where it dawned on me that the reason that the child is sick is very much bound up with the fate of the child's mom and family and community. And over the years, um, especially working with the Ford Foundation, I had the opportunity to lead women, more than 300 strong, who went to the original ICPD in 1994. So I was actually there when the concept of how many jumbo jets of women die every day. So today, UNFPA estimates 830 women died in childbirth, and it's not front page news. So the question is why? And so uh, what I've heard since sitting here resonates. The reason that I'm late is because of the crisis in Rohingya, where if you are pregnant in Myanmar and running for your life into Bangladesh today, it is really not pretty at all. And I'm very concerned about the heinous uh, nature of new sexualized violence during conflict. And uh, there's a special representative of the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who is going on a mission to Myanmar tomorrow. It's important because, as you know, Myanmar has been a little skittish about their uh, understanding of what is happening to this population of some of the most extremely vulnerable women on the planet. And so 
this concept of not being left behind and the sustainable development goals and agenda 2030 is really important. And I think the solidarity that's shown by all of us being here together to think about how can we actually influence something. Childbirth is supposed to be normal and natural and joyful and intimate. And, you know, a new baby is cause for rejoicing. So the calamity when the mother actually dies, and I always say that this mother is not a woman. A lot of maternal mortality is bound up with too early pregnancy. So quote unquote teenage pregnancy, which it's not even that, it's just being married off when you're too young or not having a voice in terms of who, when, how many children you're gonna be able to have. And I also think that it's really very important to understand that times have changed and many women um, and adolescent girls are going to be in perpetual poverty if our fertility is like a battleground. And it is still. I mean, even in, our, in, 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 in USA today, the battleground over reproductive health and rights, things that we thought we had checked the box on, for God's sake, uh, years ago, we're really relitigating and revisiting. And I'm very proud that Ashley Judd, for example, is our bona fide goodwill ambassador for UNFPA, and coincidentally, one of the leaders in the hashtag MeToo movement, which is mirrored in, you know, I'm like my favorite example, because I came to UNFPA and the UN just three years ago, and I served in Tanzania as representative, working with the government of Tanzania, with midwives, with so many communities. And that's why I was very interested in the perspective of the film and of Partners in Health. So um, as part of my work as a UN official in Tanzania, we sponsored what's the equivalent of a summer camp for girls who wanted to run, run, run from female genital mutilation. This is a ritual that's very much bound up with marriageability, the puberty cycle, and now it's actually even divorced from fertility because you can be an infant that undergoes FGM or you can be a kicking and screaming 12 or 14 year old. So in this camp, it was an opportunity for girls to do crafts and other things in the guise of not being home during what they literally call the cutting season. And we expected to have between 75 and 100 girls and over 400 came. And I just thought, you know, the courage that it takes to defy your parent when they tell you, go to the grocery store and buy three of this and four of that. Here you had girls who were from nine to 18 years old who walked, who ran. Some of them, it took days for them to get to this camp. I don't know the word spread. And I just thought, you know, courage on a different scale when years of expectation that you're going to be next. They said no. So I really hold these girls up as like my heroes. And we had like an alternative ritual for them. And they got their little uniforms. And the umbrella, which is part of the transition into womanhood. But for them, they did it without cooperation in something that they were scared of. And ultimately, I think um, it was interesting in subsequent years that boys have started coming, and we were funded to do girls, so then we had to figure out what were we going to do with these <laughs> wonderful little boys. But the perspective that a lot of the intimacy of sexuality denies people, girls and you know, my ultimate concern, the ability to be told, this is what you can expect, this is menstruation, this is life. And a lot of it is now being bound up in the definition of the family. So there were fights on the floor of the UN General Assembly about many things this year. But one of them was, what's the legitimacy of a family? Does a girl own her body or does the parent? And we heard uh, commentary, which is worrisome for us as the UN Population Fund working on reproductive health and rights that says, we are going to have to band together, sticks in a bundle, do not break, 
in order to share our understanding and our solidarity with people who, you know, may not be here in the room or they're brought in through the film or whatever, but they have the exact same human rights that everyone has. And so that's our fervor. Uh, we say that every pregnancy should be wanted so that if family planning and contraception is available, many women would not choose to be pregnant so frequently and uh, you know, would, would, would have a say in whether or not their fertility impacts on their education or on their ability to get a job. We also say that every childbirth should be safe, and I think that's been the theme here. And um, I also don't want to get away from the fact that HIV is still so prevalent because it's African adolescent girls where the trend lines are rising, where in every other cohort they're going down, thankfully. But it makes you wonder. And I think the evidence on sexual and gender-based violence, maternal mortality, family planning, and gender-based violence are the three themes that we're focusing on. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. During the West Africa Ebola epidemic, 2014 and 2016, Paul Farmer spoke frequently about the need for stuff, staff, and systems. Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea all had weak or weakened healthcare systems. One of the threads in bending the arc is the impact of structural adjustment programs on the, on the public health and education budgets in developing countries. What are your thoughts about this? And how do we work on improving health systems in the developing world? Yeah, yeah I, can, I, can, I can talk about that. And um, this is really very important because um, the very first project that was working on is really helping uh, redefining uh, quality measurements uh, for uh, our team in Liberia and working using a mentorship and, and, and a systems improvement approach to really accompany uh, our uh, partners. Um, let me start with the staff. So having a team in it, uh, it's really very important. So I remember that um, one of the challenges we faced was even uh, what we call in, in a clinical practice, we call it the uh, infection prevention and control. This is more public health. People washing hands. And you may be surprised that this was not happening. And uh, our baseline showed that uh, only 14% of the clinicians were washing hands before they touch patients. And that's why you will find that 15% of people who died were healthcare workers because even them were not washing hands properly. So um, with CDC and other people who supported our work in Liberia, uh, we had a team of mentors, mentors who would go and work with health facilities, but also making sure that a health facility has enough nurses, enough physicians, enough uh, people to provide care needed. And the mentors to go there and, and show, not only we were educated, we were trained using PowerPoints, and I, I remember people who were trained in Africa, I remember the first time I saw a PowerPoint, I could not even see the content. I could just see how they fly in and they fly out. <laughs> and, and the entire, I tell you the truth, the entire week I was just saying, what a tool. <laughs> and uh, honestly, you find people who are trained on how to diagnose if a woman is bleeding, if, if how, do you, how do you wash your hands in a way that would prevent infections. And on a PowerPoint, so for example, with having a team on the ground to be the coaches, we have been able to help Liberia to have mentors and coaches to go working closely with, uh, with uh, employees. But it's not only a team, it's also having this necessary equipment and infrastructure to prevent and, and treat uh, our patients. Uh, it's having a system, that's why we moved process improvement, having a, a systems 
driven of thinking. It's another, uh, it's, it's, it's another way we, you know, Partners in Health helps to really, how do you allocate resources? I give an example where I went to a clinic and I found that 50% of employees were on vacation. And if it's a health facility has uh, uh, six nurses and three are away and the health facility is overwhelmed, it's not easy. So how do you even help people to think about scheduling your nurses, scheduling your uh, social workers? These are very basic you know, systems needs. You find stockouts every single day. Uh, there are patients coming and there's no meds stock up because they did not know how to quantify. If I, I, I'm going to have five patients next week, how do I make sure that the, you know, I, I, I can know exactly the number of patients and, and the medication I'm going to have, so the systems. Uh, and uh, uh, these are the things that we have been really, uh, partners in health, we have been, and again, I, we learned from the um, failures we, ha we had so many years and we developed these into tools and, and, and toolkits that really are helping the sites, our, our partners in all these sites we support. Maybe you can expand on that. Sure, thanks, Fonzie. Uh, and I didn't say this earlier, but thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to be here tonight, to watch this film together, and to have a chance to talk with you. And I do hope um, a little later we have some question and answers, because I'd love to hear your questions. But, I think uh, this was a great question that you posed. Uh, anyone who knows Paul knows that he has a mantra these days of staff, staff, space, and systems, and it's all we hear about all the time. But it really is, they're very basic things, but they're so incredibly needed. Um, so Ebola was brought up, and if everyone is somewhat familiar with what happened in West Africa, in uh, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, thousands of people dying from Ebola, um, many, many more people affected very severely. But a lot of people don't know that in Nigeria, they initially had 20 cases of Ebola. They deployed 1,200 community health workers who did contact tracing for those 20 people, and they were able to contain the disease very rapidly. What's the difference? The difference is they had a healthcare system that functioned, whereas these other countries did not. And so in Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, the disease just went rampant and became worse and worse. Um, Monzi mentioned healthcare workers not washing their hands, and I saw some people shaking their heads. I can't tell you how many times as a physician I've been in a healthcare facility and have not been able to wash my hands for two simple reasons. One, there's no running water. Two, there's no soap. So as much as you want to wash your hands, if you don't have the infrastructure to do so, if you don't have basic supplies, like soap and water, you can't. You can't avoid infection. Um, another thing on that, uh, oftentimes in places we go, we see that women aren't delivering in facilities. And as you may know, when women deliver at home, they're much more likely to have complications and to have poor outcomes, both for the mother and the child. Well, we go into facilities and we say, okay, why aren't people using this facility? And uh, the one midwife there will say, well, look at the roof. There's a big gaping hole in the roof, and we have a rainy season six months a year. So, so we say, well, what do you do when it's raining? Well, if there's enough staff, one person holds the umbrella and the other person does the delivery. Obviously, if you're a woman and you're going to choose that situation versus home, where at least you have a working roof, potentially, you're going to stay at home. So I think we really need to invest in these basic things, to infrastructure, the medications, the staff, the staff is really key. If you don't have a trained staff, you can't do anything, so. Well, I just want to endorse everything that's been said and to go further to say that when we think of a health system, the system is there because it's a priority for government and also because there's an accountability loop back to the person who is supposed to get health care. So when you have an argument about universal health care, which is what the World Health Organization is advocating for literally today. I guess it's morning by now in Tokyo. So that's the theme, that universal health care should be a right. If the person herself doesn't really believe that she should have a say, 
you walk all the way to the clinic and nobody's there. So then what? And you just turn around and go home. I really think a lot of the potential for um, health systems is having the minister of finance, not the minister of health, and having the woman herself be an advocate and demand that kind of, uh, you know, circle of responsibility, if you will. I had the fun, it was really great to go to visit the Rwanda hospital that um, Paul Farmer established, like maybe I guess it was about 10 years ago when I was there. And the first thing that struck me was how beautiful the flowers and the landscaping and everything else was in this hospital, which was for poor people. But, you know, the, the idea that beauty is part of your healing and your therapy and your human dignity is part of what I'm talking about. You know, so I think if you have a caretaker in health who insults you the minute, why did you take so long? It's kind of like, okay, well, uh, maybe I'm not coming back with my next baby. So I really think we all have to advocate for the healing process to really include the wishes of the person who is availing themselves of the care and that it shouldn't just be an economy and a wealth equation. We think it's a power equation and that's what our state of world population report dealt with this year, 2017. It's online. I would recommend it to you because it reinforces the idea that Inequality in health is not only an economic thing, it's a power dynamic and gender can work against you. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm happy that you brought up the fact about uh, who now advocating. Uh, Dr. Tedros is really strongly advocating yes. for universal health care. And I thought about the irony of this and also the irony that Jim Kim is now the head of the World Bank, you know, as I was watching this film. Um, so this is going to uh, tie into my last question. We'll open up to Q&A from the audience. I have other questions just in case you don't have tons. Um, but, you know, when you think about um, epidemics and pandemics, um, so definitely Ebola, um, the recent uh, Zika pandemic and others that are going on, um, you know, is the world prepared? Uh, there have been a lot of advances in the past two years, but is it enough to respond to the next emerging pandemics? Well, I mean, I'll um, let some of the doctors and nurses on the panel speak to the pandemics, but I did want to say I, I maybe have an S to add to the list of S's, so maybe we, you can pass it to Dr. Farmer. But um, I, I think the word stage comes to mind because uh, we really do need to keep these issues um, on the attention of the world stage. And so when you talk about always needing to know what's next, um, and I guess uh, I have another S, which is a sustainability. Um, and I thought it was so ironic that in the film, the word sustainability was something that had been used to make the case against um, why we need to be you know, supporting the treatment of the world's poorest and most vulnerable populations. It's not sustainable to be investing um, you know, it's not sustainable. And now, of course, we have our own set of global goals, the sustainable development goals um, that are focused on eradicating poverty and have, you know, actually these really amazing indicators around health and gender, um, you know, that so many advocates fought for. And so I think that stage piece is really important because we know that those successes and those achievements in the sustainable development goals were, um, came about as a direct result of the advocacy of so many people. Um, and I, I also was excited to see the the International AIDS Conference in Amsterdam and the activism that was that occurred there um, positioned in the film because we actually are coming up on um, a, an important anniversary for that conference um, and it will be held again um, in Amsterdam um, in 2018 and I, I know that um, there are some activists who are there and present in Amsterdam who will who are planning to attend this conference and also talk about the issues that remain um, when it comes to HIV AIDS and, and their community even though we've lost so many of those who were there that um, in those times. And um, my organization, Women Deliver, is working with the International AIDS Society um, on a partnership that will happen where we'll um, bring people together around that conference and then again bring people together around our conference to start a long conversation because these issues can't go into the spotlight and then fade. Um, and as you mentioned, it's, it's adolescent girls in Africa whose um, infection rates are um, increasing and that is 
happening, and it's driven by so many factors, but one of the factors, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but I think it's important to talk about sex and sexuality when we're talking about um, health and bodies. Um, one of the factors is um, that there are all of these power dynamics at play um, that factor into the lives of young um, girls. And um, there are dynamics where older men are um, actually the, um, the ones who are spreading the disease and um, they're having relationships with many younger women. Um, and so it, um, younger women are the ones that are impacted, um, and, but it's this power dynamic that's really at fault. And so um, we wanna talk about how to integrate and center the entire uh, woman and girl and not just silo her issues, well, this is an HIV issue or this is an SRHR issue, but actually have a conversation that incorporates and centers that um, whole woman and all of her needs. And so I think um, the stage piece was something that um, I really wanted to bring into the conversation. So I want to talk about this. Is um, the world ready or how is uh, our preparedness in terms of the next outbreak? Um, I would say, no, we're not. We're not ready for any the next outbreak um, um, because there's, there's there's so many reasons, but one of them is not having a common understanding and, and a common priority in terms of health system strengthening. Uh, let me give a quick example. When we we were in Rwanda, we were ready to sing that we are we eliminated malaria. And malaria is one of the top killers. Actually, it remains the top killer, the top cause of morbidity and mortality in uh, most of sub-Saharan sub African countries. And when we were ready to sing, suddenly we there's a, this surprising statistics that came up showing that we had an outbreak. But the reason I was giving that example is that Rwanda was investing efforts in eliminating all these, but neighbors, country neighbors, uh, I don't know how much effort they invested in that. So the, one of the reasons we are not really ready is that we don't have a common language and a common a consensus on health systems preparedness. Um, the other reason I feel like empowerment. So. Do we empower health system? I like the point that the Minister of Finance should work with the Minister of Health. So how much investment do we make in the Minister of Health? How much uh, investment in the health sector? So you find some countries like Rwanda really invests much, but others, the Minister of Health almost doesn't really exist. They probably barely have um, uh, a budget for the HR. So um, I think there's so many reasons, but I would say uh, we're not ready. Uh, we're not ready because we are still struggling with the cholera. And uh, um, same, in the same line, outbreaks like cholera in Haiti, for example, we are still struggling for things that could be eradicated. And it was a struggle uh, that partners in health has been struggling to really showcase that we need a cholera vaccine in Haiti. Finally successful, but it was a struggle to get there. It's still a struggle to get malnutrition, for example. It's things that could help to treat kids. Kids are still dying. Uh, and when I raise my hand like this, I could just tell you number one who will die probably next week, number two, number three, number four, in my own neighborhood, in Rwanda, in Haiti, in Sierra Leone. So because of these reasons, this cause that can be easily prevented or cured. So uh, there's so many reasons, and considering all of these, I would say we're not ready for uh, the next outbreak. Okay, in the interest of time, we're gonna go ahead and start the Q&A. One of the areas you, you spoke about was really the need to be able to share the um, systems and processes and tools of what's working well um, across uh, the healthcare systems that have been put in place by, by partners in health and, and with the, the larger uh, global community support. 
Um, what's the what's the process today to share that information uh, across different PIH sites and and also um, across other, um, as you say, neighboring uh, community healthcare systems? And how does that get shared? And how does that get monitored to make sure it's it's able to be supported? Yeah, so Partners in Health has been really investing in it, really translating all these challenges into a science. So number one is uh, the fact that we turned all this knowledge into a teachable material. We have a university now, and it's training global health leaders um, who are really taking care of uh, their health system. And in that university, each single module is what we learned from this field. It's really that the most, the formal way, the, the, the first approach, which I think gonna reach uh, so many, because we have students from all over the places. But within the organization, we have a knowledge center. So we share all the manuals and toolkits that we use so our clinicians could have access to what they need uh, and, and revised versions. We are building a community of practice so people from different places could talk to each other so they don't have to struggle. So it's not only PIH employees, but also reaching out to other people who are doing the same work in reducing maternal mortality, in uh, dealing with uh, Ebola outbreaks, in dealing with infectious diseases, so they can come together and share their knowledge and, and their best practices. So there's so many other ways, um, uh, and, and uh, Dr. Alicia's uh, leading the strategy at PIH, I think she can probably tell, talk more about that. Thanks, Manzi. Uh, I think really it takes so many different organizations. You know, Manzi's just spoken about what PIH is working on, but we're working in 10 countries, and. There are so many places around the world that have need. Um, so I think maybe I'll pass it on to some of my other colleagues since PIH has just answered this question to some extent. Yeah, I, the community of practice idea fits with PIH's, I think, sort of a dissemination of this accompagnante model that Paul embodies. And so it was interesting that first across language, patients came to Rwanda and shared experience directly, which is really great when you have like hands-on people to people. But I think the um, fact is they pay a lot of attention to the evidence base and the power of technology um, really does allow us to share a lot virtually, not just in terms of diagnosing individuals, but also disseminating. And um, you know, I think there's a lot of power in a good idea and in replicating good ideas. So um, the community health worker model that they pioneered, I think, um, has really advanced to the point where it's not only popular, but it's proven to be cost effective across a variety of countries. So people pay attention to anything that says efficiency and cost effectiveness. Just. I'll add one thing, which is just that I think films like this, and um, especially in our time now when um, you know digital media is so ubiquitous, are really powerful tools, and I think they can help spread the message. And you know, you can never. I, I absolutely love this field. I love these colleagues, and I think you can never, you know, emphasize enough to a technical expert that their findings, um, you know, can't just stand on their own. They need to be disseminated and sometimes translated for the right audiences at the right time. And so we need those folks too. I think in the same ways that you have in the tech space, these conversations between you know the, the developers, the, the hard technologists, and um, and then the, the you know the soft technologists. We we need all of those skills in the movement of international development. So I think it's amazing that um, you have um, groups like Tumblr, like Facebook, which has a very innovative platform called Free Basics, which um, uh, partners with Planned Parenthood now actually to offer a very um, age appropriate and medical 
genetically accurate sexual and reproductive health and rights information. There are young people doing really cool things with artificial intelligence and machine learning to have chat box and in tools like Facebook Messenger and other chat tools so that if a young person has a question but they're about their sex or sexuality, but they're in a remote village and they, or they don't have or they're scared to ask their parent, um, you know, or, or they don't have access to the internet where they are, um, they can go just you know, go onto um, um, their phones. And even if the phone doesn't have access to Wi-Fi or internet, if it's downloaded free basics, they can have all of the best information in the world at their fingertips. So there's really awesome things happening around that. And so I think in addition to everything that's been said, it's also really important to just be able to spread that message with all the tools and innovation that we have. Okay. Hi, um, thank you all for being here and for sharing your insights. It's been such a great learning experience. Um, so watching Branding the Arc, one thing that kept, um, one recurrent theme with most of the movements was funding and funding costs. And then eventually we did start to see governments stepping up um, those, uh, I think there was a confirmation by George Bush and eventually it was more like there was this growing responsiveness of governments. <laughs> Um, so for me now, just what I was thinking about was also recently, we did learn that half of the world was, uh, half of the world's wealth was owned by individuals and we've seen movements such as um, the Giving Pledge, where a lot of private individuals are putting in money for um, global development, global health movements, but also we see that some governments then are also shifting away and I know UNFPA was recently defunded by the US, 700 million. So just curious on um, seeing this engagement of the private sector and private individuals, how that's also shaping the capacity to respond to any future health crisis or current crises. And I'll just love your insights on that. Okay, um, do one or two of you wanna answer that quickly because um, we're, we need to wrap up. Uh, and the panelists will be available. And there also is information about the various organizations that will be in the, the foyer there. So does anyone want to take that on? Well, I think it's clear that resources are really important. And uh, the shaping of resources has a lot to do with public sentiment. So vis-a-vis um, the USA's decision on funding and the so-called gag rule and the Kemp-Kastin amendment, which affected UNFPA. It was also very heartening to see the Women Delivers and the marches and the expression of people who truly believe that women's rights must be respected. So we try not to look at the entire glass half empty, although it's true that the bets that are made in terms of funding affect millions of women. And I don't know that these are women who can actually commandeer the budget in their home economies. There's a lot of very interesting work, and some of it, again, in our focus on inequality this year. We looked at funding streams, and we also looked at the uh, power dynamic of how tax regimes, and in particular, as you know, the flight of capital investment from case in point, Sub-Saharan Africa. Although Africa is seen as a receiving continent, the fact is there's vast wealth that moves in the other direction, by far dwarfing what comes in. So I think you're right that we need to re-examine um, at the, well, at the local level, at the country level, at regional and also at global levels. The private sector, I think, can certainly do more. We're all interested in wooing them to a certain extent, but I also think there's a morality in terms of the quote unquote give back. And uh, there's also a fairness vis-a-vis -vis the tax regimes and the corruption that distorts them, which is a two-way street. And I don't think we admire either side of the equation, the person who induces the corruption or the one who quote unquote benefits from it. So you've asked a very profound question and I think fundamentally the question of funding is uh, a question of investment. Investment in usually young people who can then move up into the productivity spectrum. I think there's very exciting research now on the so-called second demographic dividend, which is when people who retire 
contribute to the uh, economic betterment of society and also to job creation for the cycle to complete. So in a nutshell, sorry, thanks. I think I'll just add to that. Um, the funding issue I would actually bring around to the earlier question about um, epidemics and are we ready to face them? Because I think all of this ties in together uh, in that many of these countries have faced centuries of structural violence. And so, you know, it, Rwanda was profiled in this movie as they've shown a lot of leadership in kind of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and, and really affecting change and improving healthcare, having a strong economy, building up their infrastructure. Uh, but that's not necessarily the norm and that's not necessarily the fault of many of these countries. And I think, you know, Monzi's answer to the question of are we ready to address the next epidemic? In my mind, the next ep epidemic is already here. So tuberculosis is the number one infectious killer in the globe now, and nobody hears about it unless you're working in public health or in, you know, medicine and global health. And otherwise, it's a disease of poor people, and it's a disease that primarily afflicts poor countries, and so people aren't talking about it. And so bringing it back to the funding, I think, you know, we need to help build capacity in these countries so that they can do as Rwanda has done and, and build up their infrastructure in many different ways, including healthcare across the board for women's health, um, for cancer care, for tuberculosis, for HIV. But I think also the reason that you've seen some of these successes profiled in the movie around HIV and TB was because there were loud voices. So it comes back to um, political will and social activism. And I think the political will is created when you have the social activism. So um, using Jim Kim's words, I, I would like to be an optimist. I think um, optimism is a moral choice. And I think you have all made a decision to come here tonight. You're obviously engaged in these issues. And I think we have a responsibility to make our voices heard, to affect change. And then the money is there and the ability to make these changes is possible if we just devote the funding to the right areas. Thank, Thank you, you, Alicia. That's a great way to wrap up. And the panelists will be available. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.